I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. On cue, Frankie is whining oh. at the start of our recording. Frankie is just so on top of it. She knows when she needs She's to like, do that's, things. That's when you guys need to start talking. Um, dead air is not good, so get <laughs> on it. Um, I really have to say, hi. first time with Frankie yeah. in studio and like overseeing She doesn't disappoint. It. No, I'm yeah. excited to see what this episode with her brings. Yeah, we have a whole setup now. She's on a chair next to me because she needs her own chair. We're not that codependent yet where she needs to like be on my lap at all times. But at the same time, uh, yeah, she needs to be present. Mm-hmm. Present and petted at all times. Oh, of course. But like with yeah. the nice amount of professional detachment that like yes. the workplace I mean, she reminded for. me to take her collar off so it doesn't jingle jangle. She made sure I have my notes open. So, you know, we're happening. If you hear some creaking, it's because I made the really great choice to put her on a wicker chair. <laughs> Which we're going to regret later, and Jen will probably kill me. Yes. But, but you know what? The advantage of us doing a we, gorilla recording things, without Jen present is we can get away with that. Yeah, the things we do for love. She just texted me saying she'll be here in a minute. Should we start over? I think we can keep the, the banter going and just see what's Can we keep usable. the banter going and she'll just jump in and have to just edit this later? That's her penance. Uh, a lot going a lot going down this week. I know we're recording in advance, so people won't know like the topical feelings we're having right now, but I feel like I needed a little uplift this week, so I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, me too. I think this is probably going to be our, our last episode recorded before the midterms, so yeah. that's going to... So, hi from the past. Hopefully we're in good spirits in a couple weeks here. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if we're if it didn't go well, just be kind to us. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I was gonna say we probably want to avoid making predictions that we're gonna regret in a couple of weeks from now. Yeah, I have. I mean, after 2016, all bets are off on what anybody's gonna do. <laughs> come, come voting booth time. But you know, that's yeah. What's I'm really excited because I think I might get to vote in person for the first time ever this year. Yeah. Oh, ever. That's gonna be fun. Yeah, because I'm gonna be home. Um, I like come back up for my second week of tech, um, the morning of election day. So I'm going to be getting on a train early, but I think late enough in the day that I could go to the polling place, void my absentee ballot and vote in person. Nice. You got it all planned out. I do. I was talking to my, to my dad, who is the local judge of elections for our precinct. So who is the person responsible for voiding said absentee ballot? And he's like, I should probably look up how to do that. Like, yes, dad, I would appreciate you knowing when I show up. Yeah, that's good. At least he's ahead of the game, you know, a couple weeks in advance. That's good. Hi, Jen. We are already recording. So to to Jen in the future, you come in at about two and two and a half minutes in. (laughs) Cool. All right. Official business now. Yeah. Okay. Michael, what's up with your facial hair? Oh, God, it is. What's happening? <laughs> you got a beard. What's wrong with you? So I had like a, this past week has been rather rough. And so I didn't yeah. shave. And then I woke up this morning. I was like, I'm going to try something new. It's Saturday. Yeah. It's a fresh start. So yeah. to those of us listening at home, uh, it's kind of like a goatee-ish thing with mm-hmm. like just the haint, faintest hint of a mustache. Mm-hmm. My feelings on it, not positive, not a fan. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to shave it off tomorrow. <laughs> cool it's your face you do what you want i think you have really great skin so you don't need to hide it under facial hair that's how i'm gonna phrase that i i appreciate that the way my friend (laughs) who saw me at a show last night phrased it is i'm worried about you oh no (laughs) oh no oh no that's not nice i'm not worried about you i was gonna say it's it's your face good to have we all do things right blunt feedback and the like slightly more gentler feedback yeah, you tried it. Brave for trying. And uh, it's so interesting that you're talking about hair care because that has something to do with my person today. But I think it's technically your turn to go first. Okay. Did our doing the same person last week mess that up, or are we just going to keep going in our? 
I went off the week prior, okay. but you know, we can start fresh. I don't care. I think I will. I just loved that whole like subtle unplanned lead into yours. So, oh yeah. Do you like that segue? I do we'll like continue that segue. with it. Okay, great. So I will talk first. Okay, great. So my, my lady is, uh, known by her company, her, what's her, uh, her brand. She's known by her brand. Okay. And her brand is Madam CJ Walker. And if you tell me you did this lady, I'm going to smack you through the No, screen. that's, that's my, right? she's Great. known by this brand, but I don't know that brand face. Great. Let's see here. Okay. So she's actually, uh, her birth name is Sarah Breedlove and she's born December 23rd, 1867 in Louisiana. She is, uh, born to parents that were at the time freed former slaves working on the same plantation that they were enslaved upon two years prior. Can't even begin to imagine what that dynamic is like in terms of like, <laughs> you're now paid. Are you paid? Is it? I don't know. Her parents continued working on the plantation where they were freed technically from. So there's a lot going on there. There's not a lot of records of it, but uh, she's the first of her parents' children to be born free. All of her brothers and sisters were born pre-end of the Civil War. So quite... Quite a dynamic family history to come into. Oh, God, um, yeah. Right? It's pretty intense. They're they're uh, working on the plantation. I think it's a cotton plantation. So that's what she's raised to learn how to do first and foremost. She begins working as soon as she can. Um, she is only seven when they both pass away. But some of her um, siblings are older than her. So she goes to live with her sister in Mississippi. And she works in the cotton fields and is paid for her labor, but is not paid a lot, shockingly, I know. Yeah, I'm Um, deeply surprised about that. Yeah, so she's, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about, like, Jim Crow laws and Reconstruction for anybody that doesn't know. And um, the period immediately after the Civil War, which Sarah is born into, is the, 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 um progress of reconstruction is happening so in a way there's actually a lot of uh, opportunity for african americans immediately after the civil war before jim crow is put into place and so the about 1865 to 1877 is like what we consider reconstruction by textbook standards and the reason is that in 1877 the supreme court uh has a oh what's the word ruling yeah, that's yeah. the word. <laughs> Has a ruling that states that um, states can not prohibit segregation on railroads, streetcars, or riverboats. So if like a riverboat is going from Mississippi to you know Missouri, the jurisdiction of the riverboat is not incumbent upon the state. A basically saying like segregation's a okay and we're fine with it. Don't worry about it. And that's 1877. So once we kind of decide that segregation is allowed to be maintained in these places the separate but equal notion starts to become commonplace Mm -hmm. and it's enough time has elapsed from the civil war for southerners to start putting laws on the books that then use these jim crow loopholes to like keep uh african americans down and at a subclass so that being said the first 10 years of sarah's life is she sees this boon in um, job opportunities, education. There's a lot of like uh, government support for uh, former slaves to and children of former slaves to get uh, opportunities that they would have never even dreamed of beforehand. So that's kind of the world she's growing up in. And uh, there's a period where they're allowed to vote, you know, pol- participate in political process. They're protected by the government in doing so. They get land from their former owners, which can you imagine that kind of dynamic? And are allowed in public places in a way that they wouldn't have been under the, you know, southern regime of the Civil War and beforehand. So she's seven. <laughs> her parents have died, which is just rough. Can, uh, we'll she goes to, to live with her sister. Young passing parents. Yeah, right? You got your you got some we got another theme coming up, don't you worry. Oh no. Happens at about 14. Anyways, she goes to live with her sister. She and her brother-in-law do not get around do not get along. Apparently there's some allegations that he was kind of abusive and a jerk. Um 
to this, you know, child that was working. She was working in cotton fields. I don't know what she was doing wrong, but he had some issues. So at 14, to get away from him, she marries a man named Moses McWilliams. Um, she She's married to him for a couple years. She has a child with him at 17 or 18, which is not as horrible as it could be, I guess. But I don't want to actually even say that. It's pretty terrible. Uh, and by all accounts, he seems nice. Uh, he passes away when she's 20 years old. Oh, no. So she's a widow at 20. <laughs> oh, my God. Just, like, full of opportunity. She has a young child um, named Lilia, I want to say. It gets changed later to Alalia, and it's her only child. And she is, I find in my readings of her life, I think she's super motivated by this child to raise it and provide it every opportunity she can. And to also get herself to a place where she can provide on her own. So she and her daughter moved to Missouri where she has three brothers working. Her brothers are all barbers in town, just flourishing in like the more city oriented African-American community that's developing. Mm -hmm. Um, She starts as a laundress. She's making a dollar a day. She's learning about hair care from her brothers. Is that their family trade? She's like, oh, maybe this is like a little less labor intensive, a little more, um, you know, uh, opportunity there. I don't know. Let's see. City life for African-Americans is a new thing, especially in more southern or western states like Missouri. So she has this ex- uh, exposure to church groups and uh, higher education and the reconstruction kind of is uh, the programs that were established that she can now glean from. And she gets married again to a John Davis, but I think that was more just to like help provide for her kid because she ends up leaving him later. <laughs> She's like, no, thanks, John. I got to go. Um, She also has this personal issue where she has really bad dandruff and her hair starts to fall out. Thus the segue about hair care. Mm. And at the time, it's 19th century. Products for African-American hair are pretty severe because there isn't a market for them. Because up until recently, African-American people couldn't buy much in this area. So like the amount of stuff that was available to them was A, poor quality, and B, not actually appropriate for what it needed to be. Mm -hmm. So she has all these harsh things that she's using, along with probably poor diet, illness, you know, the logic of, like, living without running water, all of those kinds of issues that then yield this issue. So she, uh, she starts to use this, like, hair care treatment, miracle hair grower, and she's like, this stuff works. This is amazing. Who's making this? And she becomes aware of Annie Malone, who's this pioneer woman of African-American hair care in the late 18th century. And in 1904, the uh, World's Fair takes place in St. Louis. So she gets to become a commission agent for Annie Malone, selling these products that she found to work for herself. And she becomes exposed to this whole world of like oh i could uh, there's this oh i'm sorry frankie had to moan for a minute i apologize um there's this whole world of opportunity and this line of cosmetics or uh, i don't know uh hygiene products that i could i could do something with and like with the knowledge of her brother's trade like she saw how that business turned out so she kind of her wheels start turning um she Meets a C.J. Walker while she's in Missouri. Okay, I can't remember if he brought her to Denver or she wanted to go because there's more opportunity not in the South as uh, we get farther away from Reconstruction and all these Jim Crow laws start to take effect. So do they meet at the fair? They meet in Missouri. I don't know if they meet specifically at the fair. Okay. Oh, that's romantic, though, isn't it? Oh, I hope so. I, I hope they had head. a little waffle cone. They walked around cotton candy, rode the Ferris wheel, and talked about hair care. Anywho, <laughs> she uh, she meets him. He's a newspaper advertising salesman. That's a whole avenue that I didn't really go down, so I assume there's a door-to-door aspect being a salesman back then. He's clearly traveling. Um, Interesting. While she's working for Annie Malone, she's, like, figuring out how to make these products and to be like, mm, what else do we need to figure out? How do I... So then she meets this advertising kind of savant and they move to Denver together and she works as a cook for a pharmacist. And they think that because she was working in this 
pharmacy setting, she was able to learn some basic like chemistry elements too, to like, how do you make an, an, an ointment and how do you keep it in tins and all of that stuff. Anyway, so she starts her own line of products at this time. It's 1905. Um, she leaves John Davis or whoever and goes to Colorado to kind of set up this business. Um, she's 37. Her daughter is now 20 or so. So she has her daughter kind of help her as she goes. And she calls herself Madam C.J. Walker to okay. give her like a brand identity. Because at this time, Madam uh, was Parisian feeling mm-hmm. and Parisian has this whole like high class feel to it you know yeah. it's a good marketing strategy there's this whole cool thing that we definitely shouldn't get into right now but this shift mm-hmm. that happens right around the late 19th early 20th century where Americans go from being like oh the French are the worst to being like ooh the French are fancy and if we want to yeah, be right. fancy we got to be like the French. gilded age stuff yeah, yeah 100% total gilded age use of time yeah so she becomes super uh, popular pretty quickly. And at the same time, another trend in America right now is catalog sales. Sears Roebuck starts after the Civil War, I want to say, if not 1850s. I think it's right, after, later. right after the Civil War. There's been a whole slew of Sears podcasts because of the bankruptcy mm-hmm. going on. Yes. Um, interesting fact, you used to be able to buy a house from the Sears catalog. Yeah. You could buy anything from Sears, which is ironic that they failed when Amazon took over because it's literally the thing that they started. The same exact concept. Way to move with the times. Oh, sorry, Sears. No, it's sad. It is sad. Sorry about it. But anyway, she sees a big opportunity. The newspaper salesman husband is like, get in there. They be- they're actually a really good partnership in terms of their working together because you can tell where he helped her and then she did a lot of self-education and bringing a lot to the table by seeing an opportunity. And so they advertise in catalogs. They uh, set up uh, her daughter to run the business in Denver while they travel around and promote these products by being like, look what it did to my hair. Look at my beautiful, long, healthy, scalp-cared-for hair. It's a revelation. Did you not know you needed shampoo? How about that? So then you might not have the answer to this, but is this Mm. hair care products in the like, more natural style that's meant to sort of work with african-american hair or is this still the whole in the thing world? about that. okay great no this is ahead. no we should talk about that a little bit um we should talk about that let's go ahead and talk about it now so i will say once again i am super white michael is super white yes. um and jen is super white people we are white people um so i don't want to this is a new uh area for me this is a new kind of self-education moment and I don't, I, I know very basic things and I know, I know I can't even begin to talk about the historical repercussions of all of these issues that now are still very evident today. But um, at the time, like most things in 19th century America, there's a uh, class system and that class system is very much based on uh, race first, wealth second, and gender third, in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think, like, peak, 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 peak person, which, I mean, what's different about today? But rich, white, and male is where the power is, right? I have a whole list at the end about the 25 wealthiest people in America in this time. Anyway. Um, but you're also seeing the, the, the start of like the mega wealthy class mm-hmm. develop because oil becomes a big thing. Railroads are the, in, the industry of the time that she is becoming a thing is like oil and railroads and giant barren wealth. You know what I mean? These mega barons like Rockefellers and I don't know. Uh, oh, Carnegie. I don't know. Yeah. Carnegie's. Yes. Thank you. All of those steel dudes, mm-hmm. steel and iron dudes. Anybody with a name? Yep. Um, that likes to put their name on a building. So anywho, uh, she, so part of that, then as it, you know, percolates down in terms of fashion, French fashion is becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. Once again, white is seen as the neutral, in, unfortunately, and therefore all other classes are trying to then style themselves after the most powerful people. And that manifests in that African-American people are trying to make their hair behave as white hair. Okay. And so a lot of these products are catered to how do you straighten, how do you get it into like those 19th century styles where it's very like parted and 
manipulated and I mean, yeah, it's a lot. So what I will say later on that this brand is still in existence, I will say that, but also um, they like to highlight the thing about their history, which is that she started with not a way to adjust hair, but the thing that really made her famous was her healthy hair grower. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she does have a certain avenue of these styling products and, like, heated combs that would straighten things out to, like, be able to put it into the style. But she would do these things that perpetuated this idea of good hair, bad hair, which is problematic. But Mm -hmm. also she did a lot to just, like, promote hygienic options for an entire class of people that were not being listened to by the market to begin with. So in a way, she's like a hero of capitalism, and in a way, she's very problematic in terms of like fostering a issue with you know natural hair. But you know, take it for what you will. Let's let her whole story tell you about herself because she does a lot besides hair care mm-hmm. in terms of like African American story. So I don't know. I don't know if I did a good job on that. No, I think I will say. There's a really good documentary that Chris Rock did called Good Hair, where he investigates the whole history of African-American hair and products and what does it mean and what women have to go through, specifically what African-American women have to go through in terms of a beauty regimen and all the kind of cultural ramifications. But this is definitely a big moment of that in Mm -hmm. terms of Sarah's life. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Problematic. Go figure. History is complicated. Um. So, yeah. So, where are we? Mail order catalogs. So, she's able to reach a large community. Um, it's a market that's sort of untapped in terms of competitor brands. There's really just the ones I found were her and Malone. I mean, maybe a couple others, but they have a niche market for sure. Mm-hmm. And they have a trend that they can really capitalize on um so yeah they grow rapidly i mean she moves out to denver in 1905 and by 1908 they're moving to pittsburgh to open another location they're moving to indianapolis to build a giant location and this kind of is also coinciding with the start of the great migration which is a period of time where there's a lot of uh, people from the South, a lot of African-Americans from the South to flee Jim Crow and to go to places that are maybe less oppressive, but still oppressive, but <laughs> maybe a little less so. They they start to move north mm-hmm. and there's like a huge, I think it's like six million people over time eventually leave the South to make these homes. And so she's at the start of that. I think it's part of it is she's making all of these workplaces in different regions that they can go to. Like there is a place to then start a new life because you can tell there's a community forming through her business right so her daughter's helping run the whole thing she goes to different locations as they open and runs the business herself so she's sort of fostering this mogul mentality in her daughter and keeping it in the family which is amazing Mm -hmm. and um yeah uh they also open salons in these locations to like not only provide fact they don't only provide factories that create the products and ship them out and sell them. They're creating like beauticians in the method that she's creating with her products um, to, to provide uh, different kinds of employment for women. A lot of women, she hires a ton of women over her career. Um, She sets up a salon in Harlem, which is becoming a new neighborhood for African-American people in New York. And she hires factory workers, beauticians, salespeople, laboratory researchers to like make new products. Like the, the, what's it called? The um, family of her business is just very vast, very quickly. And there's immediate growth and immediate wealth for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of her management and staff positions were held by women. So you can tell like she, she's doing a lot. She's doing a lot. She uh, develops the system, as I said, the Walker system of hair care, and it promotes hair growth and healthy hair by using her products well done nicely done it's like those makeovers they give you at all the counters where it's like oh well you can get this if you buy this whole what's it called regimen Mm -hmm. this whole regimen that you didn't know you needed but 
See, interesting. I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Welcome. Welcome to female life. Um, yeah, you got you to gotta have products that work together. Otherwise, you're just negating all the good things that you're doing to your face or skin. Or mm-hmm. And, of course, the products that work hair. together are all sold by the same brand. Teeth. Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically. Yeah. You ever go through the makeup counter and there's, like, this person and this It's like, oh, well, I only use so-and-so. It's a bunch of BS. Um, well, it's a bunch of well-crafted marketing strategy. That's what I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, her system includes like sh- a shampoo, a pomade, brushing, and applying um, hot irons to like straighten hair to get it into the style of the time. And at her height of employment in her company, which is like 1911 to 1919, she employs at least several thousand women and people come in and go out and they they claimed that by 1917 they had trained 20,000 women wow. over different kind of career jobs. And there's this whole like pre-Avon lady situation. Do you know what an Avon lady is? Is it similar to like Ding- a Tupperware? Or Mary Kay. Thing? Yeah, Ding Dong Avon Calling. So she has the pre-Avon ladies where they had um, the saleswomen would go to different neighborhoods, but they had a whole regimen that they had to follow where they had to wear white blouses and black skirts and they had black satchels and they'd go door to door so that you could recognize when a CJ Walker woman was coming to your door and you'd be all excited because they were going to show you the new things. So they had this whole kind of brand identity. Mm -hmm. If we can learn anything from her, she's good at like, there is a whole brand situation and she is the face. Her face is on all the product tins, with her long, beautiful hair showing, like, how her pomade works. I just, I think it's great. I think it's great. She's, like, kind of an Oprah of her time. Um, there is something to be said of fashion. Uh, good hair. We talked about that. Okay, great. Yeah, there's, yeah. Yeah, it's problematic. Um, however, she does use her success and her wealth to give back. She kind of takes a backseat as her business grows to a point of, like, she's able to pass it on to all these people that she's hired mm-hmm. um, and promote from within. And her daughter is taking over a lot of the management. So as she takes a step back, she then takes all of that uh, face of the company and face of wealth. And you can make it in America, you know, hard work. And she takes it to her community and speaks at different um, NAACP functions. She... Uh, uses her um, name recognition to fundraise and also give money to various uh, institutions that promote education, that promote um, the achievement of African-Americans in all the places that she has seen success in the country. So she doesn't discriminate by being only focused in New York. She tries to help people in Tuskegee and and the Carolinas and the South to kind of promote education, promote uh, pursuing uh, the American dream, the, uh, for lack of a better word. And, you know, she, there's stories of her giving, covering tuition for certain people, for giving money to little uh, to girls' schools. I mean, it goes on and on. While also giving lectures and becoming colleagues with, like, the movers and shakers of the day, like Booker T. Washington and Du Bois and all of that. She... Um, she joins the executive committee of the NAACP in New York at this, like, teens era. So we're midst of World War One. There's a lot going on. Um, the NAACP at this time is hearing about the lynchings in the South and trying to be proactive. So they hold this silent march um, in 1917, which she helps organize. And it was a silent protest parade. Hmm. And it was specifically noted because it was a reaction to, um, there were these riots in St. Louis. She was from St. Louis. So there were these riots in St. Louis because there had been 40 black people were killed by white mobs. And so these riots occurred and they killed all these people. So as a reaction to that, the NAACP in New York organized 10,000 people to march 5th Avenue and 57th Street. And they were, the whole thing was, it was called the silent protest. So they were quiet to show like mob, mob rule isn't the way change occurs. We need to be showing, we need to be leading in this way. And Mm -hmm. 
it was it was shocking and made a lot of headway and she was kind of in the forefront of organizing that together so she um also ends up giving five thousand dollars to the NAACP which is for specifically for Mm anti-lynching uh action whether it's supporting law or um uh, going into court cases in the south and like providing funding that way or helping people that were you know devastated by having a family member killed in this horrific way and so it was actually at the time that five thousand dollars was the largest sum given by an individual to the NAACP wow and it's the equivalent of sixty five thousand dollars today so not messing around not messing around throwing her money around and also you could see like how big her business was doing that she had the ability to just not throw money around but give very large sums continually and with the like the proactive nature like that is where a lot of her profits were going like she Mm -hmm. was taking care of herself she was taking care of her family but she definitely is passing a lot of it down and making sure those those communities that fostered her are getting support she um passes away in 1919 at 57 which is super young but at the same time she lived a really hard life and was working since the age of seven so Doing great. Uh, two-thirds of her profits of her business in her will go to charity. And her daughter is left with the business. She continues. Um, she kind of, once her mother passes, she takes on this philanthropic vibe mm-hmm. and continues to give out. Her home becomes the site of a lot of Harlem Renaissance life in the 20s. Because they make... Th- um, she, uh, uh, Layla goes to... Or Lilia, sorry goes to New York first mm-hmm. and as uh, as Sarah gets older she goes and lives with her daughter to be close to her they build this big beautiful house in Harlem that's now a national uh, landmark but it becomes this kind of cultural epicenter for like the who's who of the community to come and talk and strategize and foster um, ideas of like how to move forward as a as a group how to like enact change at a at a local level mm-hmm. They're all historic landmarks now. There's that one. There's a one in Indianapolis, uh, the Madam Walker Theater Center. And uh, her daughter continues to, like, give money to all of these arts organizations and political organizations. They're they're really big movers and shakers of that kind of late 19th, early 20th century. Um, At the time of her death, she was the wealthiest African-American woman in America, they like to say that she was the first self-made millionaire. I think there's some kind of yeah. ish with that. Whether it's the first woman, first African-American woman. She made a ton of money. She made a ton of money very quickly is what I learned. And she was a go-getter. Um, she, By the time she died, she was worth about $8 million. Which today, $8 million today. So she she said herself that she was not yet a millionaire, but she had hoped to become one before she died. And uh, at the time of her death, the average American's annual salary was $750. So she's rolling. Rolling in it. And then her products do pretty well. I mean, in the Great Depression, they take a hit. They had just expanded their business in 1927. Oh, no. So then when the market crashed, they were kind of on rough rough water for a little while but they still have a brand identity and in 2016 the overall company brought them sundial brands launched a collaboration with sephora to launch another like cj walker product line so you can buy cj walker products now and they still have her face on them and her um Great great granddaughter, who is named after her daughter, Lilia Bundles, wrote a like three part biography about her. Wow. And about how she did this amazing, just amazing life that um, Netflix, I think, bought. And they're kind of, they're in talks to make a series about her with uh, Octavia Spencer starring, which I will love to watch. Yeah. Uh, I think we're always on yeah. a good track when like Netflix and us are covering the same people. Yeah, then we're all, that's two weeks in a row, right? Mm-hmm. So then the other thing that I wanted to talk about was like in 1918, like who were the richest people? And there's this really great list that Forbes magazine made of um, just to compare, like Sarah, Sarah did great. Madam C.J. Walker did great. 
but she had like $600,000 in net worth at the time of her death. And just to compare, the number one person in America wealth-wise was John D. Rockefeller, and he had $1.2 billion. So, still a little discrepancy Mm -hmm. (laughs) in terms of where this money... And, like, let's see, the first woman on the list is 11th, Mrs. E.H. Harriman. So, good for her. She's in railroads. (laughs) She has $80 So there might so, still be like a white man thing going yeah, on. Yeah, definitely a white thing for sure. Um, but definitely a man thing. Which I mean, it's the t- who was on here? So Rockefeller, Frick, Carnegie, Baker, another Rockefeller, Harkness, Armour, Ford, Vanderbilt, <laughs> Astor, <laughs> Guggenheim. Sound familiar? A lot of museums. Um, a lot of museums. You know. They paid it back. They gave some stuff. I'm not going to say they didn't do good things, but there's a lot of money. There's a lot of money that now is in America at this time. And CJ Walker's in there. She definitely saw a market Mm -hmm. and she saw a market that she benefited from herself. And to be at like the very, it's like being at the start of a whole new idea because she was born into the idea that African-American people in the South could have money to then spend on themselves, let alone... You know, she there's a really great picture of her driving her own car. I mean, that's a that's quite a lifespan to live through. Yeah. To be born on a cotton plantation, picking cotton herself to then you see her with these like sick hats and like she's an independent woman by the end of it. And her daughter is set for life. Like what? a That's just one generation. Look at what that can do. That's that's incredible. Her daughter never knew that kind of struggle. I mean, well, I can't say that they had some hard times early in her life, but. To know, like, that kind of blood is in you, I think that's really, that's got to be powerful for her family. Definitely. But I'm glad that her stuff is still around. I kind of want to go to Sephora and check out what they have. Because the other thing I will say that they did, even in her lifetime, as she was, um, as it was getting to the end of her life, they were trying to market to Jamaica and the the Caribbean islands in terms of, like, going international and finding other African-American, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Afro-Caribbean communities to... Uh, participate in their brand but um now when they're these new products that sephora is doing they're trying to appeal to the whole market they're definitely trying to say like how do you want to style your hair okay great we have that for you like how do you want to style your hair we hope you use these things you know what i mean Mm -hmm. there's less um i feel like they're conscious of the problematic aspects of their history with their marketing Mm -hmm. to african-american people but also like not trying to pass judgment on what people want to do with their looks. Just trying to help with wh- however they want to do. Mm-hmm. How, well, however they want to do. Whatever, whatever they want to do. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Definitely seems like a good direction to be headed in. Yeah. There's some good pictures of her. I like her. And her stuff seems like it works because she did have long, strong hair. Like there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. So No, I would love to clearly see Clearly her pomade pictures. worked. Her magical hair growth pomade or whatever she made. Yeah. Very it's pretty cool. intense. Yeah. It definitely made me want to, like all good history things. Um, it made me want to read more about her. It made me want to watch this mini series they're going to make. It made me want to rewatch that Chris Rock documentary. Because I saw it when it came out. I need to re- refresh myself on it. So Yeah. I will have to check all of that out as well. Yeah. So Madam C.J. Walker, a.k.a. Sarah Breedlove. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Also, interestingly enough, my woman this week is also an African-American woman from the South, a little bit later Mm. than yours. She's born in the 1930s, not a millionaire, although she still makes some pretty incredible contributions to the U.S., uh, specifically for the U.S. Navy. She is the first person to design a ship using a computer, which is not even a thing I thought was like a big deal, but learned that it is an incredibly big deal. Um, Also, making anything on a computer not now seems crazy to me. Right. Because you know it's like dot matrix stuff, green screened. Oh, yeah. We're going to get into it. This is like punch card level stuff. Hang on one sec. (laughs) My dog is literally... Frankie's in my headphone cord. Sorry, everyone. Okay, we're good now. 
Uh, we're secure. We're comforted. <laughs> Great. She is also the first female cool. program lady. manager Computer of Navy ships, lady. which is a super Navy title. She, mm-hmm. um, when she leaves the Navy, she is the highest ranking African-American woman in the Navy, period. Um, so Dang. she is like a badass. Um, and her, it's your go-to word. It is my go-to word. We do a lot of badasses. We do a lot of badasses. Um, and particularly because I, in college, interned for the Navy for a couple of months um, working at the Navy Yard in D.C. with their History and Heritage Command. And so spent a oh, lot wow. of time with like Navy civilian employees, which is, I think, something about the Defense Department a lot of people don't think about, that like most of the people the Defense Department employs are actually civilians. And it's a really... Like, a lot of the work they do is really important, but super thankless, and, like, often in these, like, tiny cubicles uh, that have, like, very little broader connection to the, like, very romanticized idea of military service, but is so crucial to making it happen. And she is one of those people who, like, is doing that kind of, like, thankless but crucial work that makes the other things that the military does possible. Hmm. Um, Her name is Ray Jordan. Um... She is more well-known as Ray Montague, which is her name from her second marriage. Um, She has three marriages over the course of her life, so I'm just going to stick with Ray to cut down on the confusion. Um, It's cool. It's like we know her. Yes. A little bit more casual. She was born in Little Rock, Arkansas um, in January 1935. Her mother, Flossie Jordan. Fabulous (gasps) name. Flossie? I have Flossies in my family. Really? It's short for Florence in our in our clan. Okay. Yeah, I have a great aunt Flossie and I have an aunt Flossie and they're both great people. It so. felt like a very like early 20th century thing. Um, 100%. Like yeah. very 1920s. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her mother um, raises her on her own because her father leaves pretty early on in her life. Um, and growing up in the 40s and early 50s in Arkansas... Um, particularly in Little Rock as an African-American woman, is unsurprisingly not the easiest childhood. Um, She has this really incredible interview with the Navy that she does later in life, which I pulled a lot of really cool anecdotes from. Early ones are less cool because they're like, just like depressingly... Fraught with racism. (laughs) So fraught with racism. And it's it's the exact kind of like horrific everyday racism that is so incredibly prevalent in the south and most of america at this point um and Mm. she tells the story of the first day she realizes um that her skin color is makes it difference in how she's treated um because she talks about in her neighborhood she when she was younger would play with white children fairly frequently and so didn't quite realize what it meant to be african-american but one day She's riding a bus with her mother. Um, her mother pa- is white passing, so it says white on her driver's license. Um, and even though she identifies as African American, is able to pass as white in a lot of public spaces. And so oh, wow. a white soldier gives up his seat in the bus for her mother. But then when her mother puts her on her lap and she um, and Ray is not white passing, the bus driver stops the bus, comes back, and kicks them into the back of the bus. Um, and that's her first sort of memory of being the target of racism. Well, like, didn't that guy see the kid with her? Apparently not, or just thought they weren't related. Or the bus driver was just like, I'm going to show you who's in charge of rules here. Yes. Ugh. Um, and so... Also, like, no one else made a fuss, dude. Like, no one else was like... Gotta love institutional racism. Ugh. I love when somebody's like, I'm in charge here. Let me just... Whip out the rule book. Okay, great. Cool. Awesome. Um, But despite that, um, despite the (laughs) efforts of white society to keep her from exercising her basic human dignity, uh, she continues (laughs) to pursue her interests, which by the time um, 1942 rolls around is currently coalescing around like math and engineering um, and specifically, solid STEM candidate. She points to this nice. one instance where, in 1942, her grandfather takes her to see a captured German submarine, which oh, and she, her mind's blown. Yes, exactly. Uh, she gets to like climb down into the submarine, looks at all the mechanics, the knobs, switches. Sort of instantly taken with it. She's like, I want to build things like this. What year? This is, is this? 1942. 
So it's like it's like you're seeing a spaceship. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's like that level of alien. A hundred percent. And especially like growing up in Arkansas where like you're not near the ocean to like yeah, see whole... this cool breaking technology is really fascinating. Um, Love that. Okay. But as she... And it's a German one. It, mm-hmm. uh, Exotic. <laughs> and as she leaves, she asks the tour guide, like, what do you have to do to be able to build these things? And he replies, you'd have to be an engineer, but you don't ever have to worry about that. Um, and that's cute it's great and Mm -hmm. she of course ignores him and from that sure did remember that oh yeah Uh, I love that she's like in the book thank you for that and there's so many of these like really poignant moments that she just like drops into this interview she gives with the navy that's just like just so you know I remember all you assholes and it took me twice as hard to get here thank you so much Mm mm-hmm I'm going to make all your boats. So she decides she wants to be an engineer. But of course. Despite dis- all the despite horrible all people the horrible she'll have to people. work with. Great. Um, but of course, it's the early 1950s. She's living in Arkansas and she is a black woman. And so as her mother puts it, you have three strikes against you. First, you're female and you're black and you have a Southern segregated school education. But because her mother is this sort of amazing force in her life, just sort of pushing her forward, she, in her next breath, is like, but you can do or be anything you want, provided you're educated. Uh, um, and so... Uh, moms are great. Moms are so... Yeah. We don't deserve moms. No, we really don't. And her mom... We really don't. Like, time and time again, just, like, comes in and, like, helps out wherever, like, she needs it. Strong moms theme this week. Yes, I think so. Strong moms. And probably for a lot of our episodes... There's probably strong moms yeah, everywhere. It's, I think those are our two options. Either mom dies early or strong mom. Yeah. Only two. Or both. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Um, okay, great. So strong mom. Strong mom. Um, Got to get that education. Yes. And so her mom uh, sends her to one of the top all-black high schools in Little Rock. Um, and this is one of the sort of fascinating things about late segregated secondary education in the U.S. And I'm just going to take like a really quick sidebar here to talk about segregated schools in the South before Brown versus Board. Um, So the state of Arkansas set higher standards for black teachers than white teachers. And so whereas like an average teacher in a white school at this time would have like a two-year college degree, um, all of the teachers in black schools were required to have a four-year college degree. Um, And to get around having to integrate state-run graduate programs, Arkansas would pay them to go get master's degrees out of state rather than integrating their school system. So what... Cool, cool, cool. Right? It's this, like, horribly Mm -hmm. racist system Mm -hmm. that has Mm -hmm. the side effect of producing these incredibly educated, incredibly driven teachers in the black school system. Um, And specifically for Ray, this means that her high school is really pushing her, even though the higher education opportunities to be an engineer don't exist... Her high school teachers are like, but you're going to learn as much as you can anyway, and we'll help you sort of figure out what avenues are available for you to pursue. Um, Like sidebar to that sidebar is the like, so she graduates in 1952, which is two years before Brown versus Board of Education strikes down segregated education as unconstitutional. Um, Mm. And so over the next couple of decades, cities like Little Rock, like Little Rock 9 is a pretty famous case of school integration. Um, They start slowly and very begrudgingly integrating their school systems. But of course, Mm -hmm. because people don't stop being racist at the drop of a hat in 1954, that -hmm. integration is handled really poorly and is deeply problematic. And what Mm -hmm. it largely ends up is black school systems are shuttered and black students are sent to white school systems rather than sending some white students to the black school systems and some black students yeah, to the white school it's systems. It's not evenly. Yeah. No. The change is on one group rather than... Exactly. That. Because racist white parents in the 50s didn't want their children being taught by black teachers. And the result of this is that thousands of really qualified black teachers and administrators get fired in the 50s and early 60s because as their schools get closed the white schools are not hiring black educators. Frankie wants to flee my arms because she doesn't like the story you're telling right now. You and I both, Frankie. 
Right on, girl. But you got to you gotta embrace the history or else you don't know how to make it better. Exactly. You know, if you just take it for granted, then nothing's wrong and we have statues to the wrong people. Okay, great. Um, so, all of this being said, she can't go get an, edu- an engineering degree in Arkansas. So instead, she goes and gets a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. And then when she graduates, she heads to D.C. to look for a job. Solid degree. Now, my favorite part about this is that because she has a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration, when she's sending her resume around and the Navy's looking at her, they're like, oh, you have a Bachelor of Science degree. You must know how to work with, like, high-end technology, like computers. We're going to hire you to work with one of our computing divisions. And to be clear, she does nothing to dissuade them of this. She's like, no, this is just like, sure, I can do this. Because, of course, she's the kind of person who's like, if I need to figure something out, I'm going to figure it out. Like, I can do the job. I see this opportunity. Just give me the opportunity. Um, But, like, the best part about this whole thing was there was no computer in the entire state of Arkansas at the time she was hired. So, first (laughs) of all, just thinking about a world in which, like, there are entire states that don't have computers in them. But then it just being this thing of like, she'd never seen a computer before starting this job. Oh, I love that. What a great first day. Yep. <laughs> like, um, yeah. But her. Cool, so you know where the bathrooms are. Um, figure out everything yourself mm-hmm. and we'll check in later. Yeah. And that, in a sense, was sort of what her first job was like. So she's working at the David Taylor Model Basin, which is a Navy facility outside of Washington, D.C., where the Navy tests little model boats before building full-size actual boats and her desk is right next to the computer and so she's working as primarily as a secretary but she's sitting right next to all of these engineers coming in and out putting stuff into the computers running their simulations so she within two weeks basically understands enough about the computer to run it Um, and she finds out that she knows enough to do this because one day all of the engineers call in sick and so she's like well was there a baseball game? I wouldn't be surprised. It's the what, 60s? Where are we? Uh, yeah, late 50s, early 60s, and we're in Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's like baseball or something. It's not quite football yet. It's probably like a night game. No, it's a day game, because why would they call out sick? Yeah, no, yeah, totally. Or there was like a rager the night before. Yeah, I think they like mm-hmm. all got food poisoning at a party somewhere. Or... Mm-hmm. One man's hangover is another woman's opportunity. Exactly. So you, by golly, go get drunk, my friend. And so she takes the tapes, because at this point the computer is still running on tapes, <laughs> over to the station and starts running it. And her manager comes in about halfway through the morning and is like, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm running the calculations we need to be running. He's like, do you know how to do that? And she's like, I know how to do enough to get my job done. Mm. And from that point on, he's like, great. You're the one who's going to be doing this now because you are reliable oh, and you man. know what you're doing. Oh, man. And so she's running the computer system. She starts training the other civilian employees on it. Um, and because this is the type of person she is, she's also taking night classes at the same time to learn more about computer programming um, because she wants to be transitioning to working with computers full time. Um, so she takes these classes, she gets more qualifications, and then she goes to ask her boss for a promotion and for a raise. And the boss tells her, Uh, Hold on. Frankie's on my lap again because she knows I need help. Okay, go ahead. So her boss tells her that she can't get a raise unless she can work nights. Oh, okay. That's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Right, no. In terms of like casual workplace racism, this is like nice and casual. The idea being (laughs) that the bus system in D.C. doesn't run super late at night, which is still a problem that like I personally deeply, bitterly struggle with. Um, Mm -hmm. so the expectation was if she didn't drive, which at that time she didn't, she couldn't work the night shift. And so he wouldn't have to worry about it. It was like a perfectly quote unquote legitimate excuse to not make it so hard for you to come here that you'll quit that just that like, I don't have to give you you won't get the race. Exactly. Right. Um, so rather than Mm -hmm. just sort of being like, oh, well that sucks. She goes out and buys a 1949 Pontiac and teaches herself how to drive. Oh my God. And the, the joke she tells that I can't quite tell how much of it is a joke and how much of it is real is that she would leave her house at 10 p.m. to get to her midnight shift because she drove so slowly the first couple of weeks she was driving. Oh, girl. Um, which I just like so having like driven in the greater D.C. area have so much deep sympathy for because it's just yeah, like nightmare. the worst place to drive and especially the worst place to learn to drive. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Ooh, girl. So she's now working the evening shift. She gets the raise. She gets the promotion. And she gets transferred to the Naval Sea Engineering Center as a computer analyst. So she's working with computers. She's got the job. And day three of the new job, her boss walks in, her new boss, and is like, hey, has anyone seen Ray, the new guy? I want to meet him. <laughs> and she looks him dead in the eye, holds out her hands, and like, hi, I'm Ray Montague. And he walks out of the room, apparently. Just like. Cool. Fragile. Yep. And so Ooh, a hand. she Ooh. was pretty sure that he was going to try to figure out some way to get rid of her because he's like, she's a black woman who's working with computers, no idea what to do with her, just wants her gone. And lo and behold, he figures out a way that he thinks will do it. So at this point, the Navy... I'm really glad he's, he's spending the energy on such a mm-hmm. taxing problem. Yep. Really focused uh, right on the right yeah. things. Yeah. Um, so at this point, this is the late 60s, early 70s, um, the Navy has been trying to write a computer program that will let them design ships more quickly. So at this time, it takes about two years to design a ship by hand. And her boss is like, well, we've been trying to do this for six years and can't do it. So it obviously can't be done. I'll assign her to do it, give her six months to figure it out, and hopefully she'll fail, and then I have a reason to fire her. Um, Ugh, but God. because she's great and because he sucks... She does. In <laughs> six months, she basically reconfigures the entire computing system to run a new system, and she writes a program that will design ships. This is this is solidly hidden figures. The sequel. Oh, a hundred percent. The military. The band. U.S. Navy. Like it was NASA. And now we're gonna go Navy, then Army. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Navy straight up when they were doing a lot of publicity with her um, in the early two thousands calls her their hidden figure um like they have a whole interview Smooth. series with her in 2017 that is just like straight up trying to capitalize on the hidden figures movie okay mm-hmm. um great and so the, the thing i found really fascinating about this her working on this project is this at this point you had to schedule computer time because the department she's working in has one computer and so it's not like you know you can go into work and like everyone's working on their computers like if you wanted to do a project you needed to be the only person working on the computer at that point. So it's not like she can do this like nine to five when everyone else is doing a bunch of stuff. Like she has to work at night when no one else wants to use the computer. So she would work her full day shift, go home for like an hour for dinner and then come back at like seven thirty at night and work till midnight on the computer and then go home and then come back the next morning for her day shift again. Um, That's exhausting. And of course her boss finds out that she's doing this and it's like, you can't work after hours alone. It's like unsafe. It's against policy, whatever. Again, just trying to like keep her from succeeding. And he tells her, you can't work alone, but I'm not going to pay for any staff to work with you. So she starts bringing her mom and her son with her. Oh my God. And her mom yes. just like hangs Working out in the mothers. office and does crosswords. And she yes. teaches her son how to make punch cards for her system. While she's working on the computer. Everybody involved. Exactly. Um, I love it. Mom just like coming through in the clutch. And then after about a week of this, her boss finds out what she's been doing. And finally relents and is like, okay, you seem so convinced you're going to do this. I'm just going to give you the staff. She -hmm. ends up, like I said, tearing the computer almost completely apart and rebuilding it. Mm -hmm. But finishes on time. Walks into her boss's office like, here are a bunch of plans for ships that I made with a computer program. He's kind of flabbergasted, had no expectation of it working, and then kind of owns up to that. He's like, this is amazing. We don't know what to do with this because we didn't think you'd ever get it done. So it's not like we have actual ships to design with it. This was mostly just me trying to get you kicked out. Wow. They had an honest conversation about it. Apparently. I can't tell how much of it was like him kind of talking around it, but basically it was like, we don't have anything to use this for. Except... That feels good. A couple weeks later, President Nixon orders the Navy to design a new frigate. And he gives them two months to do it. Terrible word. Keep going. (laughs) Um, And so this is a process that normally takes 24 months. And he's like, do it in two. So the admiral responsible for ship design comes to Ray and is like, do it in a month. So she turns around, gets her staff together, goes to the computer, does it in 18 hours and 46 minutes. Shut up. 
Uh, yep. Are you kidding? In less than a day. What's that walk into the office like? Oh, you gave me a month? I'm here the next day. How are you, Admiral? Here's your ship. Here's all my work. You can check it if you want, but I'm going to go get a coffee. Are you kidding? For another 30 days. <laughs> Just going to have coffee. Yeah. Uh, and so... Just like that, first computer design ship. Uh, it becomes the USS Oliver Hazard Perry. Perry class frigates. I know you don't like the word, but... It's fine. It's just a terrible it's... word. I mean, it's not like it personally offends me. It's just like, oh, we could have done better. It's fine. And so, you know, the Navy likes their tradition. Yeah, it's fine. I'm sure it's like... I'm sure it's a ship-shaped ship. It's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then so over the course of the rest of her career, she designs... Um, and this is going to get super technical for a second. The first landing craft helicopter assault ship. Um, the first guided missile destroyers. The hey. Nimitz-class aircraft carrier, the USS Eisenhower. And she designs the USS Seawolf, which is a nuclear-powered submarine. And I just love the like deep irony of like the last ship she designs as a submarine, which is this thing she wanted to do. 40 yeah. years earlier and some asshat was like no you're never going to be able to do that he's like well did and it's like yeah. the biggest most expensive most powerful submarines the u.s navy has ever built up to that carrying time. the like scariest stuff on the planet mm-hmm. so not even like yeah yeah just like not to be messed with yeah um and so the navy starts using her program to design all of its ships in 1972 she's given the meritorious civilian service award and she retires in 1990 as the highest-ranking African-American woman in the Navy. Wow. Yeah. So she's designing ships in the 60s? She's designing ships, like, late 60s, early 70s, through wow. the 90s. Do you have a list of the ships she made? Um, I don't have a full list, because there were a lot. Um, but my... Because my dad, my dad was in the Navy in the late 60s, Ooh. but I think his ship was older. Okay. Um, as I understand, the way I sort of understand is like she would sort of design the first ship in a class and then all of the other ships in that class are based off of the original design. God. Can we segue for a minute? Did she, did she make the Bonhomme Richard? Um, I can. Or something like that. It's something like, something with Richard, poor old man Richard or something. Um, it's a. Don't put this in, Jen. This is my shade. (laughs) Segway for a sec. Um, I let me. I need to double check what Wikipedia has to say. Um, but I think, I think there's a older. U.S. frigate by that name. Um, also, I don't know what frigate means it's, in terms of like what kind of ship in my mind's eye should. It's make. like a small ship, um, like a destroyer from battleship. Um. Yeah, he was on an aircraft carrier. The, yeah, aircraft, yeah, small aircraft carrier. <sighs> cool. It's named after um, John Paul Jones' Revolutionary War forget. ship. Um. Oh yeah, she was made in 1944. Disregard. Yeah. Okay. Great. Sorry, that was a tangent. We can cut all that out. Sorry. Um, I just that's my navy connection. So very cool. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Michael, explain to me exactly what I in my mind's eye a frigate means. I hate that word. The ship you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. What, what am I looking at? Um, it's a small surface vessel about the size of a destroyer. So like if you're if you're familiar okay. with the game Battleship, they're like small surface warfare vessels that would be part of like a larger battle group okay great like think mini battleship okay great um i'm with you i'm with you i got some googling to do later i think we and submarines oh she designed a variance though she designed a bunch bunch of of different different things things. Um, cool yeah are any still sailing yeah a bunch of them are um all three of the submarines in the Seawolf class that she designed are still in service, um, in addition to, like, a number of other vessels. Mm. Um, mm. So she is, like, very, even though um, she, so she just passed away 
a couple of days ago on October 10th, um, but mm-hmm. is very much still making an impact. Oh, like just like, like this, this year? year, like October oh. 10th. Oh, oh, that makes me sad. Yeah, um, and I'm really sad that like I didn't know about her prior to reading her obituary. Um, yeah, but she has this really amazing quote that I think I will leave us with, um, which is, "Open doors for other people. Don't be selfish." Try as hard as you can to encourage other people. Become a master of the game. That's one of the critical things. People change the rules of the game. When you think you've mm. gone far enough to do things the right way, they change the rules so you still can't achieve. That's literally the line in Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. What does she say? Janelle Monet says it. She's like, every time we get to the finish line, they move it back or something like that. Something That's like that. Yeah. So it's the exact yeah. thing. But And she finishes Ugh. with like, the secret to that is to become a master of the game. And get inside the system so you can help change the rules. You have to change like the rules. So oh, you can there's open only the doors. one computer. I'm gonna know the manual. Mm-hmm. Good day. Yeah. Also, like straight up hidden figure stuff, right? Like. Oh my god! Solidly. Yeah. yeah. That's what Octavia Spencer does too. Mm-hmm. They get that new IBM co- computer, and she's like, mm, "Where's the rules? I will learn coding." Yep. Amazing. Yeah. So I've while doing while mothering while mothering and working a full time job and taking classes and learning how to drive. That's a lot of ambition. Yeah. That's amazing. So two very similar I think we have like a weird theme that we get into, or maybe we find it in the moment, mm-hmm. but like they speak to each other really well. I yeah, think. I think so. Yeah, they span a lot of change. That's a lot of life to live too yeah like born in 1930 1935 dies in 2018 amazing yeah ray ray montague yeah what was her uh her what was her original last name ray jordan jordan all right ray montague also great name yeah really stellar cool i love that thank you so much welcome um Good job. Go us. And also, I think we might have come up with a new tagline for our show. Um, <laughs> it came to me as you were talking about history being complicated. Let me like throw it yeah. your way. History is complicated, okay. so we take it one woman at a time. Oh, my God. That's good. We're smart. <laughs> yeah. I was like, it took us. We got to get that CJ Walker brand identity, and that's part of the stuff. Exactly. Like... I think that's been the thing. Yeah. Like We've been looking for like one nice little short tagline. Yeah, um, that's a good one. It only took us what ten. Exactly. <laughs> we're slow learners. We just we're not as we had to try it out. Gifted as the women we talk about. Exactly, we're aspiring to them. Nice. Oh, I love that. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.